Good afternoon. I'm Janet Smith, and I'd like to welcome you to this year's Edinburgh International Book Festival. Now, before we get started, just a couple of quick points. The first is I hope all mobile phones are switched off. And the second is, after this event, Charlie Higson will be going next door to the book signing tent. I think, for me, James Bond is the ultimate hero. He's cool, calm, and collected in the face of adversity. He likes the ladies, but he's also a bit of a loner. And up until very recently, we've only ever known the grown-up Bond from both Ian Fleming's original novels and the huge movie franchise. Next film, I think, is due out this Christmas. But thanks to Charlie Higson, we have now been able to meet James Bond as a 14-year-old boy. And we get to see where things like his love of fast, expensive cars, good food, and pretty girls comes from. We also get to see him defeat his first evil megalomaniac baddies who are trying to take over the world. But what Charlie's done is he's very cleverly taken aspects of the Ian Fleming books and woven in characters and situations which are very close to what goes on in those original books. And in doing so, I think he's created some of the best books that are around for both young readers and adult readers today. So it gives me great pleasure to be here this afternoon and I would like you all to join me in giving a very warm welcome to Charlie Higson. Hi, hi. Uh, thank you very much for that, and thank you all for coming. It's great to see such a good turnout, see so many uh, James Bond fans out there. That's assuming that you are James Bond fans, because uh, I am not Jacqueline Wilson. You can tell, because I'm not wearing any rings. Um, now, in fact, I'd, I'd like to do, just before we start, a quick survey. Now, as you know, a lot of different actors have played James Bond in the movies over the years. In fact, the new James Bond film that they're just finishing at the moment has got a brand new actor, Daniel Craig. I'd be really interested to see how well he does. But uh, I'd just like to find out who your favourite James Bonds are. Who would say that their favourite James Bond actor was Roger Moore? There's one or two guys. I mean, Roger Moore actually played James Bond in many more films than any of the other actors. But uh, some people think he wasn't quite tough enough for James Bond. He was, he was uh, not much of a threat to either the villains or the ladies, I don't think. Um, let's try and get a few more hands up. Who would say Pierce Brosnan, then? Nah, that's more like it. More of the younger kids. And, all right, so what about Sean Connery? <laughs> well, there you are. Still today... Sean Connery gets the biggest vote. He was, he was the actor who was playing James Bond when I was a kid, when I was the same age as you, as, you, as you kids here, growing up in the 1960s. If I went to the cinema to see a James Bond film, it would be with Sean Connery. In fact, the first film I ever remember seeing in the cinema was, was Thunderball. But actually, Sean Connery was not the first actor ever to play James Bond. Before Dr. No, there was a radio series in the 1950s um, and does anyone here know who played James Bond in that radio series? Guy down the front. Timothy Dalton. No, it wasn't Timothy Dalton. It was actually a guy called Bob, Bob Holness. That's right. A lot of people don't believe that, but it's absolutely true. Bob Holness played James Bond before Sean Connery in a radio series in South Africa. Probably most of you kids won't know who Bob Holness is, but he was very famous uh, in this country... Uh, again, when I was growing up, he did a kid's 
quiz show called Blockbusters. And talking of quizzes, there's a lot of trivia quizzes and pub quizzes that have the question, who was the first actor to play James Bond? And the answer they often give is Bob Holness. But actually, that's not right, because he was not the first actor to play James Bond. Because before Bob Holness, uh, in the early 1950s, they made a television play, television version of Casino Royale, which coincidentally is now the new James Bond film being made. Uh, over 50 years later, the same story is being refilmed, which shows you some of the, the power of, of James Bond, that he's managed to stay the, 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 the greatest hero in the world for over 50 years. And in that uh, TV movie, they had an American actor called Barry Nelson playing James Bond. Uh, he played him as an American called Jimmy Bond. And I don't think he was even a spy. I think he was a, uh, he was a professional card player. And to give you some idea of how long ago that was, in those days, they hadn't invented videotape. They hadn't invented a way of being able to record TV programs before they went out. So all TV was done live, uh, a bit like a sporting event today or, or a news broadcast. It goes straight from the studio into your homes. And if anything goes wrong, there's nothing much you can do about it. So they set it up almost like a play. Uh, with the cameras filming it live, and they had to work out bits if the actors needed to go off and change to come back in another scene. So it was quite difficult, and you couldn't imagine trying to do a James Bond story like that now. I mean, they, they, they take at least a year just to film all the bits of the new Casino Royale. But they did in, I think it lasted about an hour, they did a TV version of Casino Royale. And playing the villain in that, they had one of the greatest uh, Hollywood screen villains, a guy called Peter Lorre, who talked a bit like that. He was a sinister kind of Hungarian kind of guy, and he was brilliant. But he'd never done any live TV before. He was used to doing movies where you can do, make as many mistakes as you like and go over it again until you get it right. And at the end of the piece, he plays the, the villain, Le Chiffre, and Le Chiffre gets killed. Uh, and he's lying dead in the back of the, back of the shot while the scene carries on, because James Bond carries on with the action while Le Chiffre is dead. And Peter Laurie is lying there, dead on the floor. And uh, he got a bit bored. And he thought, mm, I think I'll go back to my dressing room and have a little drink. It's like many screen actors, he was a bit of a drunk. And so halfway through the scene, you, you see the corpse stand up <laughs> in the back of shot, and he just walked off. And the other actors kind of carried on trying to pretend nothing has happened. And God knows what anyone watching at home thought. Well, why on earth is the corpse? Got, is he dead or what? Anyway, so that was uh, the first on-screen James Bond. But Barry Nelson was not the first James Bond, because the first James Bond... That, that story, Casino Royale, was based on a book. Before there were any f films, radio shows, TV shows, anything about James Bond, there was a series of books written by an English writer called Ian Fleming, Casino Royale being the very first one. He wrote 14 books. That's 12 novels and two collections of short stories and created this fantastic character where James Bond now is known throughout the world. Even if you've never seen a, a movie or read a book, everybody pretty well knows who James Bond is wherever you are in the world, and that's pretty phenomenal. So it was a, it was a real honor for me, and I was, I was really, really pleased when, when I was approached to ask if I'd like to write some new stories about James Bond, and to take it one stage further back still, right back to the early 1930s, and to show James Bond growing up. I, as I say, I'd, I'd grown up with James Bond. I'd always been a huge fan. Uh, I've got three boys of my own, and so the thought of being able to write a book that, that my kids would really like about James Bond was really exciting for me, and, and I've enjoyed writing these books tremendously. I've now written three of them. I'm halfway through my fourth one. Uh, and you're probably thinking three. There's only two in the shops, but it takes a long time in publishing. It takes a long time after you finish the book before the new one 
comes out. And, and uh, I expect what most of you kids want to know about is about the new book. I presume, have you all read uh, Blood Fever and Silverfin? Stick your hands up, the kids, if you've, if you've read them. Good. So that, that's most of you. Um, so, well, I'll tell you a bit. You probably want to know about the new book then. What's it called? When's it out? Uh, what's the story? Um, I can answer some of those questions, but not all. I can tell you when it's out. It's out next January, straight after Christmas, although some of the shops might have it in a little bit before. Uh, but I can't tell you what it's called, because I don't know. Uh, that's a simple fact. That coming up with the titles of these books has been just about the hardest thing in the process. Writing them, as I say, just been great fun, because Ian Fleming in his books gave me a great kind of um, a template, a style, a way of writing these books. These stories are all, all quite similar, and I'm using the same style. I've got, you've got to have Bond villains and a Bond girl, and Bond has to be captured by the villain and tortured, and he has to escape, and a lot of people have to get killed, um, which is great. Uh, and so that's great. But the other thing is that Ian Fleming came up with fantastic titles for his books, which they use for the films. And they're, they're brilliant titles, like Dr. No, From Russia With Love, Goldfinger, Thunderball, Live and Let Die, The Man With a Golden Gun, You Only Live Twice. They're just brilliant titles. So trying to come up with a title for my books, which sounds like a James Bond title, but doesn't sound like it's trying too hard to be a James Bond title, is very difficult. Because even after Ian Fleming died, uh, there were three other writers ca writing James Bond books, and of course, through the movies, they've, they've also carried on thinking up new Bond titles. So it's really difficult to find a title. And on Silverfin, we spent a long time, probably months, going through, going through titles. Um, one of my working titles when I was writing the book, well, the main working title for the book was Young Bond 1, but uh, we thought that probably not a very suitable title for the book. Uh, one of the titles I had was Out of Breath, as I thought that that was quite good because there's a lot in the book about James Bond running, uh, swimming underwater, and of course the sort of sense of excitement. But it was decided that Out of Breath didn't really sound like a James Bond sort of title. So we went through a lot of things until uh, my editor at Puffin said, how about silver? Silver's a great word. word. Could we use that in the title somehow? And it seems sort of appropriate. Ian, Ian Fleming and, and the movie makers, they've used the word gold a lot, so like man with a golden gun, gold finger, golden eye. And as we're sort of one step down from them, silver seems sort of appropriate. Uh, we're not quite gold. We're the, we're the silver, silver medalists. Um, so we thought silver, yeah. And we started putting words together with silver. And the first suggested title for, for Silverfin was Silver Skin. And we thought, yeah, that's quite good, until someone pointed out that that's a type of pickled onion. <laughs> uh, so that one was scrapped. Uh, and then the next one we had was Silver Back which we quite liked, until someone pointed out that was a type of gorilla. And the story's set largely in Scotland, and there are no gorillas in Scotland. And I toyed with the idea of, of changing Lord Hellyboy into a gorilla, but uh, it, it didn't seem right, so we scrapped that one. We cut lots and lots of other titles until we hit on Silver Finn, which, which we all quite liked. It sounds a little bit like Goldfinger. Um, but that's quite nice in a way. And it gave me the idea of making Lord Hellebore's serum called Silverfin and the, that he's named it after the loch next to the castle. And then I had the idea of creating the story about the mythical Scottish fish called Silverfin, this giant fish that eats all the little fish, which seemed like a good, uh, a good metaphor for, for what Hellebore is, is up to, trying to design this kind of uh, super, super, super soldier who can destroy all the other soldiers. So we were quite happy with that. But then we had the same problem on, on Blood Fever. Uh, my working title for Blood Fever was Double M, which I really liked. Double M was the, the symbol for, 
uh, Ugo Khan affects his secret criminal organization, the Millenaria, and uh, one of the characters, Smiler, has it tattooed on the back of his hand. And I liked the idea of double M because it, it had echoes of uh, 007 and also, of course, M as, as Bond's boss. So I thought, I, I really like this title. And then someone at the publisher said, Double M is a really boring title for a kid's book. What kid's going to want to read a book called Double M, for goodness sake? So uh, I, we scrapped that one. <laughs> uh, they said, we need something more you know, exciting and bloodthirsty. I said, all right, what about blood fever? They said, great. <laughs> great. That sums up the, the, the level of, of violence in this book. Actually, some teachers and um, librarians and a few parents have, have, have questioned, perhaps, that these books are a little bit too violent for kids. Uh, and I have to say that it's not my fault. Uh, you can blame my own kids. I, when I'm writing these books, when I finish a chapter, I will, I'll read it out to my boys. I've got three boys, uh, 7, 11, and 13. And like most boys, they are very, very bloodthirsty, uh, particularly my second boy, Jim. Uh, and when I, when I was reading Blood Fever to him, whenever a new character would appear, he'd say, kill him. <laughs> I said, they've only been in the, the book for half a page. You can't kill him. He said, why not? Just, just kill him. Push him off a cliff. Or, or, or under the wheels of a train. That'd be great. And I said, well, I just can't kill every single character in the book. He said, yes, you can. That would be great. As far as he's concerned, he, he, the book should just be a series of fights and people being horribly killed. And he'd be happy. Um, but I've had to put in a bit of plot and some dialogue and some background, background detail. But, but you know, the, the level of violence is there to, to please my own children. <laughs> Um, but Blood Fever, it seemed like an appropriate title for the book because there's all the stuff about malaria and James Bond being uh, tortured with mosquitoes. And of course, malaria is a fever that's passed on through the blood. Uh, there's also the idea of blood fever, like a um, blood lust, like the, 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 the desire to kill people, which is a big theme in the book. Uh, and also the idea of blood as in family, when you talk about being of the same blood. Um, blood is thicker than water, whatever. And there's a lot of stuff in the book about um, vendettas, about, it was too violent for them, about family members wanting to get revenge on the death of another member of their family. Um, so, so Blood Fever seemed a really appropriate title, which brings me eventually, sorry, after quite a long uh, ramble, to the new book. Um, now, the working title I had for the new book, and like all my working titles, has been <laughs> savagely rejected. Um, a part, of course, from calling it Young Bond 3, uh, was Shoot the Moon, which I quite like because um, one of the things that James Bond is famous for is, is gambling. We often see him in casinos. Casino Royale, famously, um, is largely set in a casino in the book, and he's very often gambling and playing cards. So I thought it would be good in the book to show the kind of origins of that. And like a lot of boys at school, he, James Bond plays a lot of cards. And we see that he's taught to play a lot of card games by his messmate, his friend Tommy Chong, the Chinese boy that um, he's friends with, who, like a lot of Chinese, he really loves gambling. So there's a lot of that in the book. And, we, and, and in fact, during the book, James Bond actually, as, as a boy, does visit an illegal gambling den um, where the villains are hiding out. Um, but at one point in the book, he has to play a card game against another character. And I wanted to choose a game that I thought kids would know or at least understand, or the possibility of playing. So I chose hearts. Let me do, uh, any of you kids here know how to play hearts? Some of you, that's good. You may know it as different names. It's also known as Black Mariah and um, another game that's too obscene to mention, actually, in this company. Uh, 
it's a game where you play tricks and you don't want to win any tricks with a heart in because that counts against you or if you get the queen of spades that's a massive penalty against you but there's one thing you can do in hearts which is you can try and shoot the moon which is where you try and get all the penalty cards every single one of the hearts and the queen of spades and you sort of wipe the slate and it's very difficult to beat you if you do that but it's a high risk um, tactic because if even one other player just wins one heart you're left with a massive penalty against you and this idea of shooting the moon, of risking everything in order to win everything, seemed to be to kind of sum up James Bond's character, that he's willing to take risks like that and go out on a limb. Uh, so I thought shoot the moon was very appropriate, but it was felt that it actually shoot the moon sound, it does sound a little bit wet. There's something about the moon sound, it's sort of a bit soppy. So that was rejected, um, which meant that we're now stuck in a position that we don't know what the book's going to be called. Um, so I hope I can think of a title before it comes out. Um, so, I mean, if you, actually, if you want to check on the, on the, the Young Bond website, the youngbond.com, uh, there'll be sort of updates on, on how we're getting on with the title. Uh, and, you know, you may be able to help, help out, send us in some suggestions. Um, so what's the book about? Well, it's, it starts when a teacher at, at Eton, one of the masters, gets kidnapped. He's a... He's a mathematics teacher, he's a very clever scientist, and he also sets crosswords for the times. Um, I won't tell you why he's been, he's been kidnapped, you find out during the book, but he manages to send a letter to Pritpal, James's friend Pritpal, the Indian boy, um, who is a member of the teacher, Mr. Fairburn's Crossword Society that he runs at the school. And he sends him this letter which seems to be just saying, I'm really sorry that I'm not going to be around. I've had to go off and do other things. But Pritpal and James realize that actually the letter he sends is a cipher. It's a coded message. And it contains seven clues as to what has happened to the teacher. And uh, James Bond has to set out and try and find what's happened to him and solve the mystery and uh, save the world, as usual. Uh, and, and so the book starts with Pritpal getting this letter. And because... Fairburn has disappeared, has been kidnapped. Nobody at the school knows what's happened, including the headmaster. So he visits uh, Pritpal and James in their room uh, with, with this letter, and he says to Pritpal, can you read it out? Because we want to know what's happened to this guy. And so Pritpal reads it out, and the letter reads a bit strange. There's some odd bits in it. And so Mr. Codrose, who runs uh, the house that they, live, that they stay in in Eton, uh, decides to confiscate the letter and lock it up in his study. Uh, at which point... Uh, Pritpal asked James, can he get the letter back? Uh, in fact, I'll read you a bit now. You can hear this four months before anyone else comes out in the shops. So you should be very privileged here. <laughs> uh, this is a very early sort of attempt of James Bond. It, it's a kind of schoolboy version of trying to copy a set of secret documents. Um, and it's about him setting up this plan to break into Codrose's study with the help of his friends in the Danger Society who we met in Blood, Blood Fever, a group of friends at school who like to do dangerous things. So this is from chapter three of the new book, we don't know what it's called, uh, The Raid on Cod Roses. The following afternoon at three o'clock, James was hiding in the dark, cramped space beneath a sideboard in the Cod Rose dining room. He'd been waiting there since lunchtime, surrounded by the smell of floor polish and dust. He looked at his pocket watch. It was time. If all had gone to plan, the other members of the Danger Society should be in position. James's friend, Andrew Carlton, was on the roof. 
Just before lunch, Carlton had come over from his own house and James had shown him his secret route to get up onto the top of the building. Carlton was a couple of years older than James and although a keen member of the Danger Society, he had a level head and could be relied on not to panic or get carried away. He was crouching by a large glass dome that looked down into Codrose's study, flattened against the sloping side of the roof and keeping perfectly still. He had a clear view of Codrose sitting at his desk, reading a letter. Carlton could see right down onto the top of his head, where there was a perfectly circular bald patch about as large as a penny. Ten minutes earlier, as arranged, Pritpal had asked Codrose if he had heard anything more from Mr. Fairburn and then talked about a couple of passages from the letter. Afterwards, as hoped, Codrose had come straight up to his study, removed a key from inside a hinged wooden globe that opened out into two halves, unlocked a drawer in his desk and taken a letter out. Carlton had watched the whole thing. He was as sure as he could ever be that it was the letter from Fairburn. He heard a whistle that meant that Perry and Gordon Latimer were in place below, and he gave his answering signal by flicking a small pebble over the top of the roof. It clattered down the other side into the gutter. Everything was set and ready to go. Perry and Latimer heard the rattle of the pebble. They looked both ways along Judy's passage to double-check that there was no one coming. Then Perry lifted his hat to reveal a half-brick carefully balanced on top of his head. Here goes, he said, weighing it in his hand, and then he hefted it as hard as he could at a ground-floor window. There was a loud, satisfying smash, and the two boys started up a terrible racket, shouting and yelling, There he goes! Did you see him? He went that way! Catch him, somebody! There was movement within the building. Boys were coming to the windows and peering out to see what was happening. Presently, the dame appeared. What on earth is going on, she said, and Perry and Latimer started jabbering away at her, both at the same time. It was a boy. We saw him, a local boy, from the town. He ran up and threw a brick through the window. We tried to catch him. He looked a terrible ruffian. The dame bustled back inside, tutting and clucking. The next person to see her was Carlton, up on the roof. He watched as she came into Codrose's study and told him what had happened. In a moment, Codrose was up. He hastily returned the letter to the drawer, locked it, and put the key back inside the globe before folding it shut. As soon as he had left the room, Carlton flicked another pebble over the roof and hastily started scribbling on a large piece of paper he had brought with him. From his hiding place beneath the sideboard, James heard footsteps, and in a moment he saw Codrose's feet as they marched across the wooden floor, closely followed by the dame. As soon as he was quite sure they had gone, he slid out and ran over to the door that led into Codrose's private quarters. If he was caught here, James would surely be beaten. But he wasn't thinking about that now. He just had to get on and do the job as quickly and efficiently as possible. He had been summoned to Codrose's study on a few occasions, so he knew the way well enough, and he ran up the carpeted stairs to the top floor and pushed open the study door. He glanced up at the dome in the ceiling where Carlton was holding the piece of paper against the glass for him to see. Written on the paper in thick charcoal were the words, key in globe, letter in desk, top right drawer. James soon had the drawer open and the letter out. He had with him a camera, the very latest Leica Mark III, was the pride possession of Gordon Latimer, who was a member of the Eaton Camera Club, and he had been very reluctant to let James borrow it. There was daylight coming from the windows in the dome, but James switched on the ceiling light and a desk lamp to get as much illumination onto the letter as possible. He hoped it would be enough. He steadied his elbows on the back of a chair and held the camera as still as he could, focusing on the letter. Latimer had given him a crash course in photography that morning, showing James all the dials on the camera and explaining what they meant. 
Luckily, James was a fast learner and had a good head for mechanical things. The Leica had a slow shutter speed, which was vital in this low indoor light, and James fired off five pictures with slightly different exposures. He flipped the letter over and took five more pictures of the back. He was done. The letter went back into the drawer, the key went back into the globe, then he switched off the lights and gave the thumbs up to Carlton, who scurried away across the roof to make his escape. James left the room, closing the door behind him. The whole thing had taken less than two minutes. He ran down the stairs three at a time and was soon back in the dining room for where he cautiously peered out into the hallway. Pritpal was waiting for him there, looking nervous and jumpy. He nodded that it was all clear. James crossed the hallway and passed the camera to Pritpal. As casually as he could manage, Pritpal sauntered outside. Codrose and the dame were still there along with most of the senior boys from the house. When they saw Pritpal come out into the alleyway, Perry and Latimer knew that James had got away safely and they could allow Codrose to go. It had taken them all their ingenuity to keep him there. Perry had had to go so far as to say that the mysterious local hooligan had attacked him. He had made a big song and dance about showing Codrose the bruise, pulling up his shirt and vest and showing him some marks on his side. Codrose wasn't to know that Perry had got the marks playing the field game the day before. At last, the crowd began to disperse, and Codrose went back inside after sending a younger boy off to fetch the caretaker to mend the broken window. Pritpal secretly handed the camera to Gordon Latimer and watched with some relief as the boy followed Perry back down Judy's passage. It was over. Pritpal let out his breath and dried his sweaty palms on his trouser legs. He hadn't enjoyed the last half hour one little bit. He wasn't cut out for this kind of life. Solving puzzles was one thing, but break-ins, lying and vandalism was something else. In future, he would leave this sort of thing to James Bond. So that is a sneak preview. Thank you. Um, so, I mean, what I, what I try to do in that passage is what I've tried to do a lot in the books, which is take the typical kind of James Bond elements, the adult things that he gets up to, and scale them down to a level that kids can kind of... Uh, in a situation that kids can sort of see themselves in. Um, and so, in a way, you know, some of the masters at, at Eton act uh, as if they are <laughs> criminals and supervillains or whatever. So... Um, Actually, rather than me just just um, just droning on here, I quite like to throw it open to questions because you kids normally ask very good questions, and uh, I can actually tell you what you want to know about rather than what I think you want to know about. So, this guy over there put his hand up first. There'll be a, a microphone. Was that you? Yeah. Uh, where did you get the the inspiration of Georgia and Randolph Hel Helbor? Where did I get the inspiration for the, uh, George and Randolph for the kind of the two? the two villains in the first book. Well, the first thing I knew I wanted to do was to have James's first confrontation with an enemy, as it were, to be another boy. Because again, I, as I said, it's trying to, to do those kind of adult things in the book, but on a level that kids uh, will have some experience of. So I, I wanted James to have some experience of bullying at the school, and then through the, the process of the book, he becomes braver and stronger, so that by the end of the book, he can stand up to the bullies. Um, which is why I, I, I wanted the idea of, of George Hellebore being at the school. The fact that they're Americans, um, I was trying to get away from the standard, um, standard Bond villain being a kind of evil foreigner. Uh, and Americans are foreign, but they're not sort of, they're not like Russians or, or slimy Turks or something like that, which, um, 
that's not me, that's what the sort of things <laughs> that happened in Ian Fleming's books. Um, so I thought, let's make the villain a clean, upstanding American. Uh, so I wanted to get away, I also wanted to get away from the fact of making the villain in some way uh, disfigured or disabled, because if you think about it, a lot of the Bond villains have got some kind of weird disability, and I didn't think it was really very fair to equate disability with evil, or you know, the fact that you're scarred somehow makes you a nasty person. So I wanted to make Lord Randolph Hellebore sort of perfect. He's a big, strong, handsome man. In fact, he's so big, strong, and handsome that he becomes slightly scarily perfect. And I thought, and again, and again that Americans are very good at, at that kind of big, strong perfection. <laughs> so it, it seemed right to make him to make him an American. Um, and, and then I was thinking of, of using the, the plot in the book that he's, he's making a, a sort of early version of steroids and pumping himself up even more and making himself even more kind of muscular and um, beaming and full of life and energy. So, so that was where the, uh, where the hellebores came from. There's a guy down here who's yeah, in the stripy top. How many do you want to do? How many books do I want to do? Well, um, when I was, I was first, I was asked to write these books by Ian Fleming Publications, who are the, 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 uh, the company that looks after the James Bond books, uh, and they still have members of, of Ian Fleming's family involved in that company. Um, and, it, and it's up to them. It, it's only through, through them that anybody can write a James Bond book. And they said to me they'd like me to write a series of five books. Uh, now, since then... And in fact, I've worked out the plots for five books. It's a complete story, and a lot of the things in the fifth book relate back to things that have happened in the other books, and some things are explained that, that, that perhaps we didn't know about from the earlier books. So I've got a, a, a story worked out that leads up to the time when, uh, when James Bond has to leave Eton for various reasons. So I've got these five books worked out, but um, the books have been selling rather well. Uh, they've been quite big bestsellers here. So... Ian Fleming Publications have already started to say, I'm sure we didn't say five books. You know? I th I, did we not say ten? Or was it twenty? Um, so they'd sort of quite like, I think, me to write a few more of these. But as I say, I've got the story worked out for five, which, which ends with him leaving Eaton. So if there were any more books in the series, they would be slightly different. Because um, Ian Fleming doesn't tell us very much about James Bond's childhood in his adult books. But one of the things he does tell us is that James Bond was expelled from Eton after only two terms. Now, I've got James Bond staying at Eton for longer than two terms, for reasons that gets explained in the fifth book. But it does end with him having to leave Eton. And he goes from Eton to a school in Scotland called Fetis. And I've always thought it was quite funny that um, David Cameron, the leader of the uh, Tory party, went to Eton, which is where James Bond started at school. And Tony Blair, our prime minister, went to Fetis in Scotland. So. Perhaps James Bond is a sort of cross between David Cameron and Tony Blair. <laughs> They'd certainly like to think so. Uh, who's next? The guy up there in the green shirt? Why did you decide to use eels as uh, the creatures of the evil man? Well, why did I decide to use eels? Well, once I dismissed the idea of using a gorilla... Um, well, as I say before, the book was set in, in Scotland. Um, James Bond is well known for going up against nasty beasts like sharks and crocodiles and tigers. And like the gorilla, there are very few of them in Scotland. Um, so it had to be an animal that uh, you could find in the British Isles. 
and I also, as I said before, I wanted it to be on a level that kids can relate to. And I don't think any of you here ever really seriously think you might be attacked by a great white shark. But you can imagine eels, and they're in, they're in the rivers and lakes all around us. In the same way, in blood fever, I used mosquitoes, because I knew that pretty well all kids who've had any holidays in the Mediterranean have got strong memories of mosquitoes, and not very pleasant ones. So I wanted to use things that, that would mean something to the kids reading the books. And also, my wife really hates eels. They really freak her out and upset her. So I thought, yes, I'll put some eels in the book and upset my wife, because they can be quite upsetting, eels. Uh, but in the course of writing the book, um, I read up quite a lot about eels and find actually that they're quite amazing, extraordinary creatures. And as with so many other animals in the world, they, they've gone from being extremely abundant to actually there's less and less of them around and they are becoming almost on the threatened list, which is a great shame. Uh, similar thing happened with Peter Benchley, who wrote Jaws. Um, he spent the rest of his life campaigning for sharks because he was so upset about what a what a, a bad PR job he'd done for them in his book Jaws. Because again, he'd found out what amazing creatures they are and what damage mankind is doing to them. So uh, stick up for, the, for your local eels. So take some from this side. Uh, the guy down there with the glasses. Do you want to make any films of the books? Well, that is a question that always comes up. Um, because of James Bond, um, because the books have been really popular and they're quite exciting, everybody says they'd make great films, and I, th I think they would. Um, but one of the reasons for writing these books in the first place was uh, the Inflamia Publications wanted to remind people th that James Bond started in books. Ten years before there were any films made, he appeared in his first book. And they, they wanted to slightly address, readdress the balance and, 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 and let people know that, that about the great, the great literary side of James Bond. So what we didn't want to do then with these books was to rush straight into making films so that it was, we want people to cut, kids particularly to come, come to this through the books and not, not straight through, through films. Because then the, the, the films can sort of start to drive the books and you get an image of the, who the character is and everything from the films rather than from the books. That being said, we hope in the future um, that we will we'll make some, some films of these books. Um, and you know, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the Stormbreaker film has just come out of the Alex Ryder books, which has obviously been really popular and successful. So um, I think there's obviously a big market for this kind of thing out there. So who's next? Uh, a, guy, a guy up the back there on the on the end of the, in the blue. Yeah. Will you be relieved when you finish the books? <laughs> Well, I will and I won't. Um, as I said before, it takes about a year to write one of these books. Um, and even after they're out, you spend a lot of time for the kind of year after it's out coming to events like this, talking to people, talking about your books. So by the time I finish, I, I will have probably been working on these books for about seven years of my life, um, which is a long time to be working on a character which, um, although I can put a lot of myself into it, the character was created by someone else. It's someone else's idea. Um, and you know, I think part of me will, will be relieved, but it's been enormous fun, and it's been a great pleasure and an honor to be able to write about James Bond. And so I think I will miss 
the whole thing when I'm not involved in it. But you know, if we go on to make films, and I, we're going to be doing graphic novels, and there, there'll be a lot of other stuff over the years. So one way or another, I think I'll probably still be involved with Young, young Bond for a long, long time to come. Uh, the girl over there. Um, are you thinking of making any new series? Well, I have found, um, before writing these books, I'd never written for kids before. I'd written four adult thrillers. Um, I'd been wanting to write something, because I said I got my own boys. I wanted to write something that they could read. Um, and so when this idea was presented to me, it seemed perfect. And I have found that I've really enjoyed writing for kids, and I like doing events with kids. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a good age group to, to write for, this, this kind of age group. Kids are still really interested in books and um, and ideas and things. So I would love to go on and write some some other series about characters of my own. Yes, definitely. Um, oh, you choose. <laughs> Quite a while. I'll come over to you side next. How long have you um, been writing books for? I've been writing books since I was about 14, uh, and I was writing little stories and things before that. Pretty well as long as I can remember, I've, I've been writing things. I've always loved writing. Uh, when I was a kid, when I was supposed to be doing my homework at night, I'd be writing books. Um, those books are all locked away in a secret drawer somewhere, never to see the light of day, because sadly, most books written by 14-year-olds are not that good. Um, I know Aragorn, perhaps, is, a, is, a, is an exception. But I, I love writing, um, and it's what I enjoy doing most in the world. Um, my first uh, adult book I, I wrote in my 20s, um, and that came out uh, towards the end, about 1990, I think that was. Uh, so I've been publishing books for about 16 years. Um, I also do um, TV work. The, the older people here will know me <coughs> from doing... Uh, comedy shows on the TV like The Fast Show which, which is also involves writing it's a different type of writing but in the end it's all writing which is, which is what I love doing um, and it was, it was a great pleasure as I say to be asked to write the, these books to, to try something completely different again having written adult thrillers and comedy for TV and um, a couple of kind of uh, horror movie type things it, it was nice to do something completely different again so um, if any of you are interested in writing I'd say keep it up because it is a very uh, satisfying job to be doing uh, take one for the, the girl down at the front here. Yeah. If you could be Bond for a day, what would you get up to? If I could be Bond for a day, what would I get up to? Well, I'm not sure I should answer that in front of children. Um, names like Ursula Andress spring to mind. Um, well, I'd get up to all the things that James Bond is, uh, is, is known for, apart from the smoking. Um, I quite like a vodka martini, yes, uh, to drive a nice Aston Martin. Um, it might even be fun to shoot a few people, who knows? <laughs> uh, try out some of the gadgets. I mean, that's the great thing about Bond. He's the sort of ultimate fantasy, particularly for, for, for boys and men who are simply slightly larger boys. Um, Actually, it was slightly tricky in, in writing these books because if it, all the things that James Bond is famous for, the smoking, the drinking heavily, the misbehaving with women, 
driving fast cars, killing people, are not really things you can have a 13-year-old boy doing in a, in, a, in a children's book. So I had to kind of think of ways to work that in and to keep him still essentially James Bond. So as you know, in Silverfin, he does learn to drive an early version of Aston Martin. Um, there are girls in the books, although he sort of wrestles with them rather than, uh, <laughs> rather than anything else. Uh, that, I mean, that, that's a problem. That's, that's the hardest thing, actually, in the books, is getting that angle in, because whilst girls might like a bit of romance in the books, um, hands up any boys here who'd like to see more kissing in these books. <laughs> There's a couple down the front. Some of the more mature boys. Um, but no, most it's like, oh, yuck. Um, in fact, I was doing an event. Uh, it might even have been in this very tent last year. I can't remember. But I said, you know, how do I get around this? How do I have... Uh, how, how do I put the sex into the books and still make you boys want to read it? And one boy stuck his hand out and he said, well, how about James Bond is just going to kiss a girl and at the last moment there's a huge explosion and they get distracted. <laughs> so I thought that was a great idea. So in future books, lo look out for lots of explosions <laughs> just when James Bond is about to kiss a girl. Um, yeah, take one from the guy at the front there. What car have you got? And have you got an Aston Martin? You're laughing in a way that implies you know <laughs> that I do not have anything like an Aston Martin, I'm afraid. Uh, I am almost ashamed to admit that I drive a Ford Focus. <laughs> One of the most boring cars in the world, I know. But it's very practical. Um, around where I live, if I had an Aston Martin, it would get nicked, scratched, blown up. Uh, stolen, uh, but nobody touches my Ford Focus. <laughs> uh, nobody's interested in stealing it. Um, I did uh, for some of the. There are some good perks to this job, and one thing the Sunday Times asked me to check out um, wasn't an Aston Martin. Aston Martin wouldn't let me drive their latest car. They'd obviously seen me drive, um, but Bentley. Uh, they lent me a, a, a really flashy um, Bentley sports car for a weekend, which was rather nice. So I, for, for a weekend, I did, did pretend to be James Bond, although I had to drive very slowly over the speed bumps, which you don't see in the films. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not Jeremy Clarkson. I'm not really much of a car person, I'm afraid. So. Uh, the guy there with me, uh, sticking his hand right up. Yep. How did you write your books? How do I write them? Well, I, um, I use a computer, word processor, Microsoft Word, and I do very boring office hours. I, I have a little office at home. I go in at 10 o'clock in the morning, and I come out about half past six. And during that time, I've, I set myself an amount that I need to write however many pages. And you know, I'm not constantly uh, writing. I do spend a lot of time playing Call of Duty online. Um, <laughs> but don't tell my wife. She thinks I'm working. Uh, but as long as I get done in the day what I, what I need to get done, then, then, I, then, I'm, then I'm happy. So, yeah, I mean, it, writing like anything else, you have to approach it as, as a job and you just have to just hammer away at it. And uh, the invention of the word processor, of the computer, has been fantastic. It means, you know, you can move things around and change things as much as you like, uh, which really suits my way. I, I like to work very fast, get the ideas down quickly, and then go back and keep changing it and hopefully making it better. Where, where are we? A guy at the back in the white, if you can get there.
Which Ian Fleming book is your favourite? Which Ian Fleming book? Well, I like the, the two of his books I really like. Um, I like Casino Royale because it was the first one that he wrote. And it's very interesting because it's, you can see the, the original creation, the invention of James Bond. There he is for the first ever time. And Ian Fleming, when he wrote that book, could have had absolutely no idea of what was going to happen to his character. No idea that 50 years later we'd be sitting here in Scotland talking about it. Um, so it's really interesting to see the birth of the character in there. But my favourite of, of all of his books, which I think is his best written book, is From Russia With Love, um, which is a great story. It's got some great characters. And interestingly in that book, for nearly the first half of the book, James Bond doesn't appear. It's all about the villains, these Russian villains. And um, it, it's a really fascinating book and a, and a great story. So you know, if you, were gonna, if you wanted to read your first adult James Bond book, I would recommend either Casino Royale or from Russia with Love. But whatever you do, don't read The Spy Who Loved Me, because it's awful. It's written from the point of view of, of, of a woman in the first person, and Ian Fleming didn't really understand women. <laughs> uh, whoever's near to you. Um, do you know why, the, why you were approached to write the Young Bond books? Why was I approached? Um, they, uh, the, the Ian Fleming estate, they approached a number of different writers. Um, there was a woman working for them who I'd worked with when I was writing adult books, and she knew my, uh, she knew my thrillers. She knew that my style was very simple and direct. Um, I, I love hard-boiled American crime writing, where the, the writing is very simple and direct. Uh, and they felt that that was a style that, was, that would be suitable for children. She also knew that I was a big James Bond fan and that I had boys of the right age so that I might be interested. But as I say, they spoke to a lot of different writers. Um, and all of us writers then, we all met up in this secret mountain hideout. Uh, we met around this huge polished marble table. And I pulled a lever. <laughs> and all the other writers fell into a shark tank. And I got the job. I'm still to this day not quite sure why they chose me out of all the writers. Um, I obviously was very pleased that they did. Uh, they, I, I guess they liked my ideas for, for how the series would work. Um, they also they didn't want these books to be too kind of uh, too kind of childish. They quite liked that my adult thrillers were quite dark and 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 violent, and they because they wanted to get some of that essence of James Bond into it and not make it too kind of Famous Five. So. Uh, girl at the front there. When you, when you were a child, what was your favourite book? When I was a child, I, I wish I could answer that. I read a lot of books when I was a child, but I can't remember any of them. Uh, it was such a long time ago. Um, I, didn't, I didn't really have a favourite. I used to love reading um, myths and legends, stories of ancient Greece and Rome and things like King Arthur, stories about knights, Robin Hood, and, and a lot of fantasy. That kind of stuff. Um, I also like funny books. I, I love things like Tintin and Asterix. And there was a character called Professor Brainstorm, who was a kind of uh, mad inventor. And there were some very funny books written about him. Um, but I, d I don't really have a, an, a an absolute sort of all-time favorite fr from that age. Um, I'm going to have to make something up, because people always ask me. So. Can I hear at the front? I wish I could answer all your questions. You've obviously got a load of great questions out there, but I'm afraid we are running out of time. What's the fourth book about? What's the fourth book about? Oh, you're keen. 
Um, the fourth book is going to be largely set in Mexico and the Caribbean. The third book, untitled, uh, largely takes place in London, uh, and the, the climax of it is in the, the old London Docklands, which used to be this incredible place which was absolutely crammed with ships. Uh, it was the biggest docks in the world, and they, they said that you could walk from one side of the Thames to the other across the decks of the boats without ever getting your feet wet. So I thought that was a great location for the climax. But after doing that, I felt for the fourth book, we need to send James Bond away somewhere hot and exotic. And uh, particularly the Caribbean, where Ian Fleming had a, had a house out there and set a lot of his books. So uh, the story is going to be set largely out, out there. That's all I can tell you for the minute. Um, well, while we're down here, the guy, the guy with the glasses there. Who's your favorite Bond girl? My favorite Bond girl. Um, I quite like the girl in From Rush With Love, um, Rom uh, Romanova. Uh, I, uh, Daniela Bianchi played her. She was rather, rather nice, but th this is not something we want to talk about in front of the children. Uh, <laughs> Ursula Andress, of course, everybody, the first ever Bond girls, and everybody remembers the scenes. It's probably the most famous ever Bond girl scene of her coming out of the sea wearing a white bikini and with a, with a um, knife strapped to her leg, which kind of sums up the Bond girl. Uh, although if you, look, if you look at it, it was an extremely large bikini. Although at the time it was considered rather, rather daring. Um, guy there in the stripy top. Stick your hand up again, there we are. Hi. Um, Who's your favourite Bond villain? Who's my favourite Bond villain? Actually, you, you guys could help me a bit on this because I'm uh, in the process of writing a big article for a magazine called Esquire about Bond villains. Um, so, just before I answer, um, who, who's your favourite Bond villain? I don't know who's my favourite villain because most of them are just completely mad. <laughs> but if I had to say, it would be Goldfinger. Goldfinger, he was great. He, 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 he was certainly one of the top three, and he had the best line of any, of any Bond villain, which is the line they always quote, which is not in the book, sadly. It was only in the film, which is where Sean Connery is strapped to the table with a laser coming up between his legs. Uh, he says, do you expect me to talk, Goldfinger? He says, no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. <laughs> and that sums up, as you say, the completely mad Bond villain. So who else would say Goldfinger? What, right, what about Jaws? A lot of the kids like Jaws. What about Blofeld? Yeah, now you see, Blofeld is uh, no, a big Blofeld fan back there. Blofeld's my favourite. In fact, uh, my favourite Bond villain is Donald Pleasance, who plays uh, Blofeld in You Only Live Twice. Uh, and he sort of created the ultimate Bond villain. It's the Bond villain that Dr. Evil is based on in Austin Powers. He's got a, he's got a crazy foreign accent. He's bald. He's got a scar, and he lives in a volcano. <laughs> uh, you kind of think you can't get better than that. Uh, and he, he was the Bond villain who appeared most. In the early films, you never saw his face at all. You just saw the, the white cat that he was always stroking in his lap and feeding live fish to out of his tropical fish tank. Uh, so I, I, I think my favorite is, is probably Blofeld. Has anyone else here got, a, got another one we haven't mentioned that they really like? You'll have to shout because I can't. Uh, Odd job, odd job, of course. Nick Knack, Nick Knack. He was uh, not necessarily scary, but he was pretty memorable. Scaramanga. 
the man with a golden gun who had three nipples. <laughs> he did. Okay, let's take another question. Uh, yep, girl, girl there. And then we take some from this middle row then. What do you do once you've finished a book, writing a book? Well, I know that Jacqueline Wilson always says when she finishes a book, she buys herself another ring, um, which is why she could hardly lift her hands off the floor now. Um, you always think when you finish a book, you're going to have this great feeling of excitement. I think, oh, great, it's all done. Uh, but actually, you sort of feel slightly deflated. It's sort of, well, you're finished, and that's that. And particularly with these, as soon as I finish one, I've got to go on and write the next one. So I've never really, I've never really had the chance to stop and, and sit back and enjoy it. So I guess when I finish the fifth book, I'll, I'll buy myself a ring, uh, or maybe a nice necklace. But uh, yeah, I mean, um, I, I probably crack open a bottle of beer, you know, splash out. Uh, the girl in white here. How did you make up? How did you make up your ideas so quickly? So quickly. Well, I'm not sure they're that quick because you've got a whole year in writing a book. You 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 don't have to have all the ideas before you start. I quite like not working it out too much. And sometimes the the villains they'll they'll change. Um, in fact, the book I'm writing at the moment, the fourth book, the mo the main villain started out as a man, uh, now turned into a woman. Uh, not during the book, although perhaps. Perhaps he should. It's about time we had a sex-changing Bond villain. Um, so, I, you know, as sometimes when I'm writing, after a few months, I thought, actually, that's a much better idea than the one I had before. So, um, it's, uh, so it's not necessarily as quick as it might appear. But, um, you know, when you get an idea for a book, it, it comes, be lots of different ideas will sort of come together. It's like for Blood Fever, um, <coughs> I'd had a couple of holidays in Sardinia, uh, which I really liked. I thought it was a very interesting island with a, with a really interesting history. So I wanted to set the book there. Then I, I, I read a bit about this this cave that they discovered in the mountains with a with a prehistoric village inside it. So I thought I wanted to get that into the book. And then, as I say, I thought, well, mosquitoes would be good to get them in. Uh, and I wanted to put some stuff in about art, theft, and pirates. So all these different ideas just sort of start putting together into a sort of big pudding and, and hoping that when it's baked, it will actually taste of something. Go straight over there to the guy. Stripe top just there. Nope. There. <laughs> Thanks. Um, why did you make uh, Count Hugo a sort of art, the, art thief? Why? Well, originally the book was going to be quite a lot about um, art smuggling. I thought that was quite an interesting area um, to get into as, as a kind of scheme for the for the villain and there was going to be a lot more about it originally but as I started uh, having started the book I started reading quite a lot about um, art theft particularly in the 20s and 30s and there was actually very little money in it um, because obviously if you steal a famous painting you can't really sell it to anyone uh, unless they are a super criminal <laughs> who's going to keep it hidden somewhere so Actually, as a, as a kind of villainous scheme, it didn't uh, make much sense. So that became more of a side story about just about Ugo trying to have this great collection of, uh, of, of paintings around him, great Italian paintings to kind of feed his, his vanity. So, so the main, his main plot was originally going to be a lot more about 
about art theft. But when, but as I say, when I thought about it, the mechanics of it, uh, he wouldn't have been able to make very much money at all doing that. So that that fell fell away. Um, yeah, the guy there, just next to you. Yeah. Uh, do you prefer your books to the Ian Fleming? <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're much better. Uh, you know, my books wouldn't exist without Ian Fleming's books. Um, and the films wouldn't have existed, and you know Austin Powers wouldn't have existed, and the idea of a Bond villain it's, it itself wouldn't have existed. So, um, you know, I, I owe a huge debt to Ian Fleming, and he, his books, his best books, are still very, very readable today. They still stand up very well. They're very exciting. He great, created some great characters. You know, the guys we've been talking about, like Goldfinger and Odd Job, and whatever. It's all in the books. So, uh, you know, I, I, I can never hope to be to be as good as Ian Fleming was, but. Um, I'm doing my small bit. The girl here? Will you still be on TV? Will I still be on TV? Uh, I haven't done any TV for a while because I've been writing these books and it was quite a nice break because I'd been doing TV programs back to back for about to, uh, nearly 15 years. Um, so it was, a, it was a nice chance for me to, to just step back a bit and uh, concentrate on writing it. It meant I could be at home a lot more see more of my kids. Uh, but I still love doing TV, and I want to do some more in the future. But the, the main thing I'm working on at the moment uh, is a, a comedy film for kids, which I'm writing with, with Paul Whitehouse, who I used to write the Fast Show and the TV comedy with. And we're hoping to get as many of the Fast Show team together to be in that film. So that's our next big project, which, which if it all goes well, we'll be filming next year. So you can look out for that one. Guy in the front here? Are you making a lot of money writing these blonde um, books? Am I making a lot of money? <laughs> Kids always want to know how much, what car you drive and how much money you're making. And sadly, I got disappointing answers to both of them. Um, you do have to sell a lot of books to make a lot of money. Also, because these books are, I didn't create the character, um, the, in, in, the Ian Fleming estate do take quite a lot of the money themselves. Um, but I don't, you know, I, I write because I love writing. It's great when you get paid for it as well. And, you know, I'm not complaining uh, because thanks to you lot, these books have sold really well. And, I, you know, I'm eternally grateful for that. And I'm so pleased that kids, boys and girls, have really liked these books. Um, so keep buying more and maybe, maybe I'll be as rich as Goldfinger one day. So I've got time for one, one last question. Who's the most keen? There's someone actually shaking in the middle there. So we'll go with that one then. Stick your hand up again. Yeah, you. Is there going to be a new creature in the third book? Well, it's a bit tricky, and the, the cover designers were kicking me because uh, I didn't put a creature in a third book, but partly because whilst I know that kids like books to be familiar and, and for a series to have a lot of the same things, I didn't want it to get a bit predictable to have another nasty little creature that would appear on the cover. So uh, there, isn't, there isn't an evil creature in the third book. Um, there's some evil villains um, and everything else you would expect from the book. But no, no creature, I'm afraid, in the third book. Third book. But the f I'll make up for it in the fourth book and put as many in as I can. <laughs> I'll have a whole zoo worth of them. I'll put a big scene where he has to escape from a zoo. But anyway, thank you so much for coming down and listening to me. and. Uh, I'll see any of you afterwards for the signing. Thank you.